Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we've got a highly unusual set of guests. I think this is our largest number of guests we've ever had. We've got three different people on. Um, and they are and bigger, bigger is better in this case. More is better. Yeah, that's say. right. This is the Costco episode. More the more guests, the merrier. Uh so so we have um a historian, Dan Berger, who has written a book called Stayed on Freedom, The Long History of Black Power Through One Family's Journey, which is... I didn't even have to prompt you to do the subtitle there. You just did the subtitle. On that's right. I didn't care. I've been trained. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm like a... You know, a sort of recalcitrant terrier that you know. <laughs> but eventually, eventually, yeah, you, you fall in line. You just apply the writing crop enough times, and eventually, he <laughs> learns to stop nipping at your heels. Um, but more interestingly, so this, you know, this is a history of one family. Uh, but the principal characters of this book, which is about, you know, goes back to the 1950s and 1960s, about two people called uh Zohara Simmons and Michael Simmons they are both on this on the show as well and yes. and so we we have two like legit semi major figures of the civil rights movement on the podcast i had never yes. heard of them because i'm an ignorant swine but uh <laughs> they you know the them and there are a lot of people like them who were who they were involved in ways that did, d- didn't make the headlines, so to speak, but, no. but really, really fucking mattered in a serious I mean, way. We don't even we don't even really get to it because there's so much in this book that in their in, in their lives that like it would take ten hours to explore in like a, a thorough way. Uh, we don't even mention the fact that like they had personal, not just encounters or interactions, but like activist work done with. Malcolm X and John Lewis and, you know, that, you know, the, the major figures you think of Dr. King, uh, Stokely Carmichael, almost anyone that you can think of in, in the fight for, uh, civil rights in, in the black power movement, uh, makes appearances in the book, but it's actually a story of this family and their lives and their relatives and their loved ones. And the rank and file, as you talk about Ryan in, in the interview, who really made these uh, made the movement in all its various manifestations and fronts, right? And like, there is so much richness and struggle and pain and hope and courage and excellence and beauty in this the narrative spun here by by uh, historian Dan Berger that. Uh, we, you know, the hour went by faster than almost any episode I can recall. And I, I have to say that these are maybe like my favorite guests of all time. Just like I could have talked w- with them uh, for a, a 10 hour marathon left anchor. We should do that sometime. We should do like a left anchor marathon. <laughs> we you, know? Like, you know, they do back in the day where they did those call in things, you know, that's kind of like televangelist marathons or whatever. Anyway, th- this would have been uh, something we could have just gone on and on about. Yeah, I th- you know, um, I wasn't sure how these 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 folks would be on the podcast, but they started telling stories uh, about going down into Jim Crow, Mississippi. Um, Zohara uh, talks about this, you know, in the 1960s, before the Civil Rights Act, before you know the Voting Rights Act, uh, before the back of Jim Crow was broken by federal yep. power. And being terrified of being murdered and doing it yep, anyway. 
and, and finding people who would who would uh, you know help you, locals who would risk their lives to help you try to achieve a better future for Black people in the South and in the rest of the country. Yeah. And that's right. Um, it was you know I mean like I was getting chills. Listening oh to my these. God! It, it, it is. If you're not moved by this, you need to like come out of your coma or something. I, I, we, and this is a discussion that goes from Jim Crow South to to Philly to prison to Syria to Africa to you know, it's it's global, it's local, it's feminist, it's Marxist, it's it's just an incredible combination of uh, people's lives where theory and praxis in the fight for justice is manifested. And of course, Dan, the historian, is there to provide very helpful uh, historical context, as well as, of course, very personal stories of his own as he was uh, as he befriended both Michael and Zohara, uh, meeting Zohara as a student in Florida back in the day. So, so it's just a it's so rich, and I really think you know, in addition to this episode, that people should should read the book um, because it's something that could keep you thinking and feeling for uh, a long, long time. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's all I got for now. Yeah. Well, let's not, uh, let's not prevaricate around the bush uh, any longer <laughs> um, yeah. and get to our interview with Dan Berger and Zohara and Michael Simmons um, in a second after I remember to mention. <laughs> I was wondering, I was wondering if you're going to remember. <laughs> the podcast is sponsored by the American Prospect Magazine. Uh, donate $10 a month on our Patreon. You'll get a free digital subscription to the magazine and a discounted uh, a print subscription. Uh, otherwise, $5 a month gets you bonus episodes, rate, review, etc., etc. Okay, let's get going. Boom. Yeah, let me just start with you, Dan. Uh, you know, since since uh, you, you wrote the book. Um, First of all, which- welcome, everyone. Really a pleasure to have you all with us. I can't stop laughing. <laughs> Our guests always say that. Uh, but anyway, yeah, the the book, by the way, it's called State on Freedom, The Long History of Black Power Through One Family's Journey. Uh, it's it's by uh, Dan Berger. And so, so, Dan, this is a little bit of a... In a peculiar book from a history perspective, you know, it's centered around two people uh, who are are uh, alive and with us on the podcast, in fact. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, historians do that. But, but what inspired you specifically to write this sort of book about these two people? Yeah, you know, I, I think... Um, historians do that and also don't, don't often do that. Um, I think that, you know, I, I really wanted to push against the, the silos that we so, so often, or that hopefully not we, but that's often get applied to, to movement histories. Um, and, you know, at least within recent history, one of the biggest silos is, is, um, you know, that sort of movement of the sixties began and ended in the sixties and, uh, and, and that's it, right? That's where the end of the story. And so, you know, for me as a sort of young, young activist, uh, you know, growing up in the nineties, I started uh, college in the fall of 99 or summer of 99 actually, but, um, you know, I sort of had this idea about the sixties, but sort of most of the, the grownups in my life were, um, 
you know, had no sort of movement path. Um, and, uh, and so when I met Sahara Simmons, who started at the University of Florida the same year I started there as a student, um, you know, it was very exciting, but, and it also was very inspiring to, to, to go, you know, read about sort of civil rights and black power histories. And, you know, this was, um, I mean, I remember being on a march with Zahara after the 2000 election, um, you know, and just sort of thinking about the ongoing threats to even sort of basic democratic rights, like the right to vote. Um, and I think being, you know, in Florida for that election and sort of knowing, you know, partly with Zahara's help, just sort of knowing and sort of walking the echoes of history. Um, and I think that always sort of stood out to me. And uh, when I uh, moved to Philly and at the end of 2003, I met Michael early 2004, and it was sort of a continuation of, right, that, that these movement histories are movement presence uh, and, and really emphasizing the sort of intergenerational for me, you know, that sort of intergenerational nature of political struggle is really important. And part of what that siloing does is, is to sort of separate generations, separate struggles. Um, and I think when we look at, at, at the sort of long distance uh, sort of fighters for, for justice, we see things are a lot more messy and intermingled. And so I want to do a book that can sort of do justice to that. Yeah, and so you know, you 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 you've got a history here, but it's also a kind of biography of two people, um, Michael and Zohara Simmons. Uh, you mentioned Zohara, so Zohara, maybe could you tell us how did you uh, meet Michael? Uh, what 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 were you um, up to in the at the time, and and how did you you know? Uh, strike up a, a, a relationship with him? Uh, well, both of us uh, were, were in SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, I had uh, been a student activist uh, in Atlanta uh, and, you know, became acquainted with SNCC as a student activist and uh, learned about Mississippi Freedom Summer, just giving you a little background, and uh, decided that I <clears throat> wanted to go to uh, Mississippi for the 1964 Freedom Summer Project uh, to be a, uh, a freedom school teacher, wound up becoming the project director for about 18 months, um, and was in um, pretty bad shape from all of the stress and uh, terrible things that we all lived through during that period and had been sent to New York by SNCC to pretty much get some uh, rest, some R&R, but also to do some fundraising for the organization. And then uh, got called back to the South, to Atlanta, uh, because of a couple of things one of which was that Julian Bond, whom I had known as a student activist, uh, and also, of course, uh, as SNCC's communications director, uh, had the organization had decided that he should run for office, and he did, and uh, for the state legislature, and he won, and uh, they would not let him take his seat uh, because of the statement 
that the SNCC had issued against the war in Vietnam. And uh, he, as communications director, had signed the press releases, you know, that went out with the statement. So they used that, uh, calling him a communist. And as Dan said, everything but a child of God to keep from giving him his seat. So I was called back. Uh, but there was also a terrible murder of a, a Black Navy man in Tuskegee. And uh, I was called over to Tuskegee to help organ help work with the students at Tuskegee and adults who were organizing around that. Uh, Michael tends to have a much better memory than I do of details, but I'm, I think we met there, but I'm what I really remember is us meeting in Atlanta at a SNCC uh, staff meeting. Uh, so I'm coming, you know, from Mississippi field staff work, New York SNCC office work, uh, back to the South and um, not in any way understanding that what had, what had brought me there being the re-election of Julian Bond was going to turn into uh, a project called the Atlanta Project of SNCC. And so Mike and I met uh, right before the, the formation. Well, we really were working on his re-election campaign. Well, well, Michael, let's hear the other side of the story. Then. <laughs> so let's hear from the defense. Uh, what, what, what were you up to at the time and how did you uh, uh, meet Zohara? Mm. Um, yeah, thank you all for this opportunity, first of all. Um, that uh, my uh, SNCC history was nowhere near as rich as Zohara's. And I had joined SNCC in 1965. Um and worked in Arkansas. I had wanted to join, excuse me, in in nineteen sixty four, but I didn't know the process for doing it, so I didn't. But uh, but by sixty five, I was determined to join, and I joined um with advice for, from some veteran SNCC workers, um, Worth Long, who started the. Arkansas Project and SNCC, I found out much later. Um, and uh, Jimmy Travis, who was a Mississippi native who had been working in SNCC almost from the beginning in Mississippi and had been shot uh, in the head in a failed attempt to assassinate uh, Bob Moses. Um, and so I met them in Atlanta on a spring vacation uh, trip to Atlanta to explore SNCC, at least it's an Atlanta office. And that uh, conversations with them, dealing with the Malays from 1964, the Democratic Convention led me to Arkansas. And I worked in Arkansas um, till uh, from about June till September, October of uh, 1965. And then I was asked to become a what SNCC called a campus traveler, which meant that organizers would travel around the South at primarily, but not exclusively, historically black colleges and try to recruit 
uh, SNCC activist. And so I was assigned basically uh, um, South Carolina, North Carolina, and um, Virginia, spent most of my time in Virginia. So that when when the um, the assassination of Sammy Young and Tuskegee, Alabama occurred, we were um, those who could come were called back to the national office. And I was in Richmond at the time. And it was during the discussions of that led to the Atlanta project, Julian's reelection, the uh, anti-war statement on SNCC was when I think I, my initial contact and, and interaction with Tsar, and it became much more uh, politically and personally intimate after we started working on Julian's um, uh, re-election. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. I, I wonder if, if Dan, you could talk a bit about SNCC generally and its importance. Um, you know, we're going to kind of be weaving in and out from the, the personal narratives to kind of the, the connections to the broader uh, Black Power movement and, and the fight for justice. So, so I think it might be helpful to, to contextualize for people who don't know about uh, SNCC and all that it did. Yeah, and you know, researching the book covers you know more than a half century of work, and SNCC is is on the one hand just one part of it, but but a very important part. And getting the chance to go deep into SNCC's history, both through the interviews with Zahar and Michael and others, but also to the archives, was very exciting. Um, and in fact, uh, per, you know, for for your earlier question, Ryan, finding the the meeting notes from the meeting where Zahar and Michael met was was, you know, I like raised my arms in triumph in the archive, right? The, <laughs> that, and I think part of what is so interesting, what was so, so exciting for me about that is, you know, there, there's innumerable number of, of relationships that begin at activist meetings, you know? <laughs> um, and, and so obviously there's nothing in the minutes that says, you know, that this was the start of something for anybody. Um, but I think that phenomenon is certainly familiar to me um, that, you know, if you meet someone at a conference and or a gathering or protest, whatever, and, you know, then, you know, months later, weeks later, years later, uh, it becomes a, a relationship. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 I love that sort of stuff and, and really wanted to sort of braid that in, into the book itself. Um, anyway, for, for SNCC, I mean, I, I, I hope, you know, listeners will have some um, recognition of SNCC as an organization. And certainly, I would argue the sort of vanguard of the civil rights movement. Um, so it began as a, a sort of youth movement, a, you know, youth, youth-led, student-led organization following the um, sort of spontaneous outburst of sit-ins in 1960, um, always sort of strong, you know, uh, college student leadership, but but also with a lot of mentorship and support from Ella Baker, uh, Howard Sin, Stoughton Lind, and some other sort of experienced radicals who are older and kind of more in the background, but were helping to provide sort of the container for SNCC. Um, you know, at the time, SNCC workers were known as the shock troops of the civil rights movement because they were on the front lines you know, Mississippi most famously, but also Southwest Georgia, uh, you know, Arkansas, or el- everywhere sort of throughout the South, you would find SNCC workers engaged in a combination of community organizing and direct action. And I think those things were so 
blurred, um, it's sort of hard to know where, where one stopped and the other started because of the, on the one hand, the severity of the conditions in terms of what fighting Jim Crow or just existing under Jim Crow required. Um, and on the other hand, the, the intensity and the dedication and the commitment of being embedded in and part of the local community wherever people were. And so even though SNCC was an organization primarily, at least initially, primarily of college students, the work was so much in these local communities and at least prior to 1965 in rural communities um, that it was much more about being the sort of catalytic agent to help spark the sort of latent uh, sort of political desires of those communities, right? So it wasn't sort of parachuting in and, and leading a march and leaving, it was how to work with local people so that they could actualize their own desires. Yeah, that that uh, actually leads me to a question I wanted to ask. Maybe Zohara, um, I could ask you. Um, a subtext of the book is about leadership. You know, I mean, the fact that the uh, you, you would write a book, Dan, about you know a a, a couple of uh, folks who are not like you know, the super famous Nobel Prize winners, uh, you know, who are on the headlines of the New York Times or whatever, you know, it suggests a certain view that that like the the rank and file folks or maybe the people sort of a few steps down the ladder of the, the hierarchies or whatever are are just as important in their own way as people like, you know, Martin Luther King, John Lewis, those sorts of folks. And it reminds me, in fact, of the movie Selma, um, in which, you know, which is a, about Martin Luther King and the march in Selma, but a lot of the movie is dedicated to Martin Luther King having terrible doubts about what was happening and almost giving up and, and his lieutenant sort of having to like bolster him, you know, and get beyond and like the, the Martin Luther King persona being sort of a, a, a mirage, you know, a creation of this, the movement that it was like a much bigger sort of, apparatus behind him that made this this sort of legend possible and i don't know if you could speak to that zahara it was like the the role of uh, uh leadership and and um how important were you know the rank and file folks in terms of achieving uh what snick did and uh the rest of the civil rights movement uh excellent question um and Dan mentioned that SNCC began out of the student sit-in movement uh, formed in 1960. And so, you know, sitting in uh, the Freedom Rides, uh, SNCC people were very, very involved with that. And then there came this uh, sort of a, a time when the issue was direct action versus community organizing. And uh, at a SNCC meeting, there was, you know, on and on back and forth about this. And Miss Ella Baker said, well, why does it have to be an either or? Why can't you do both? And so that's exactly what happened. Uh, but one of, I think, the hallmarks of SNCC's work was to burrow into a community, live with the people, 
discover the leadership that is in every community and to help that leadership with resources, uh, uh, backup, et cetera, to recognize, realize their own um, desires for themselves. Um, you know, I went to Laurel, Mississippi uh, to be a, as I mentioned, a freedom school teacher. And when I got assigned to Laurel, one of the things that, you know, I was first of all terrified to go. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, and when I was growing up, they always said the Mississippi Delta began on the main street of Memphis, Tennessee. So you're talking about a racist big town uh, where Jim Crow, uh, you know, it rode hard. And so my grandmother who raised me always said, the worst place in the world for a black person or a Negro, as she would say then, is Mississippi. So all my life I have been taught, don't go anywhere near Mississippi. So I was terrified, but felt I had to go anyway because of this project that had inspired me, the things they were planning to do. So uh, one of the things when they assigned me to Laurel with two other uh, people, both of whom were men uh, and both of whom were black. And I hope you know that the 64 Freedom Summer Project brought in some 800 volunteers uh, and most of whom were white. And so until Schwerner Goodman and Cheney were killed, uh, you know, we didn't really know they were dead, but everybody kept telling us they were. I thought the fact that there were going to be so many white uh, volunteers that maybe we wouldn't get killed. The whites were going to sort of be our protection. Now, of course, I was disabused of that because Schwerner and Goodman disappeared. But nonetheless, I was still trying to hang on to maybe we'll survive. Maybe they're not going to kill up you know, a bunch of us. Uh, but they then told me Laurel, they were sending me to Laurel with two black men because it was too dangerous to send any whites there. And I said, too dangerous? Are you out of your mind? <laughs> that was the whole idea, right? And they said, yeah, but, and there's no infrastructure. And I said, no infrastructure? They said, no, you guys will go to Hattiesburg, 30 miles um uh, to the south, and then you'll come up to Laurel every day and try to find people who want a project. Well, that was shocking, to put it mildly. But anyway, they had a list of NAACP members. And so uh, <laughs> on our second day, trying to scout the town out, you know, going to the Black barbershops, the Black beauty shops, et cetera, saying, who, who around here is voting? Y'all want to vote? You know, are you interested in that? You know, that kind of thing. Would you like a freedom school here? Anyway, the first door I knocked on was a woman named Mrs. Eberta Spinks. And I'm still struggling to try to find out how do you ask somebody, do you want to join a movement where you may be killed, uh, your house is possibly going to be burned to the ground. Uh, your children are going to get hurt. I mean, I'm still trying to figure out how in the world do you ask somebody that, you know? 
So this lady comes to the door. I'm stumbling around trying to figure out how to ask her this. And she looks me up and down and she says, are you one of those freedom riders? And I'm like, uh, wonder is that good or bad to say yes? But I said, <laughs> I said, yes, ma'am. She said, come on in. I've been waiting on you all my life. Now, this was a woman in her 50s. And so in a, less than an hour, she said, what do you need? And I said, well, we need somewhere to stay. There are two guys out there in the car and me. She said, well, you can stay here. I said, really? She said, yes. And I said, well, uh, I got Jimmy <laughs> outside. And, uh, and she said, well, I'm going to call my neighbor across the street. She'll put them up. I said, you think so? That was the beginning of the Laurel Project. So, you know, it's so important to understand that here were people they didn't know me from Mary Jane, right? And they're like, you just here. And you and were 19 years old. I was 19. Right, right. Right. <laughs> right. And that was the beginning of the Law Project. This woman was a, wow. a renowned person in her community, uh, just a housewife. You know, her husband worked at the Masonite plant. She had a teenage son. And she got on the horn. I mean, she called Carrie Clayton. She said, I got two boys I need you to put up. They 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 freedom riders. And and Miss Clayton, who was a widow lady, older, maybe in her late 60s, she said, Oh, okay, Claire, you know. And so here we we ran back, got our clothes, and came back. And we built a movement with those people who Mrs. Spinks brought them to her house. They, these kids came down here to help us build a movement. Incredible. I, I, I need to follow up uh, with Michael on that because it, it reminds me, uh, there's a lot of badass people that aren't known that are involved here. And, and the thing is that, you know, Dan writes a lot about you know, mutual aid and, and the ways that people helped each other, helped strangers and gave and took risks and were courageous. And, uh, and, and just, I'm wondering, Michael, what you, what you think, how you connect with Dan's kind of allegory that the struggle for justice and for freedom and for the, the whole Black Power movement, he an analogizes to a love story, right? And, and his love story that he describes is not just about the personal love story with your family and, and your relationships, but I think it's talking about the complexity of what loving relationships actually entail. And and how much is involved with that is way more deep than people really give give credit for. I think. So, what do you think about how the, all the stories we're reading here about the people taking risks with strangers and 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 just doing all these amazing things, all the different excellences, how those relate to what it means to be in a re loving relationship, right? Yeah, that's uh, um, the. So many ways to pick that up. Um, that in, in, in a political sense, let me start there. Um, that I I have something short of a, a physiological reaction if I'm in an environment in an extended period of time and people are being grossly oppressed. I mean, where you just visually see it on a daily basis. I mean, there are a lot of environments where it's more subtle, but 
And um, so, so that like I just moved back from 20 years in Europe or working with um, Roma or gypsies as they're known. And people ask me how I started. Well, I mean, you know, my view is how could I not do something if I'm living here with folks um, being as oppressed like that. And similarly, I mean, in my own reality, that the there was a um when I think about the metaphor of love in terms of how Dan has construct Dan constructed the book, I really see it in terms of the work that Zahar and I have done in terms of like identifying. I mean it's one thing when you meet someone like Mrs. Spinks, who was a leader before Zahar arrived. But then you meet people who never even thought of themselves as, as leaders. Some were young teenagers, 15, 16, 17 years old. Some were considered uh, 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 having a negative impact on their community. I mean, not 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 in a criminal way, or at least large-scale criminal way, but clearly problematic. Some, um, that like I've been in situations where people who were literally alcoholics um, the movement just gave them a reason to be. I've been in um, uh, prisons where people who had been written off by every institution in the culture began a, a legal career, literally writing briefs for themselves and others, or a literary career, literally. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that they made a living out of it later, but in terms of the talent that emerged in their life. So that when I think of of love and then in terms of um, Zahar, I mean, you have to see Zahar at work. I mean, uh, in terms of doing what she does and by at work, it could be at any level of work, you know, that, that there are those who seem to only be able to be the formal stand in front leader. And that's all they can do. And if they can't do that, they're frustrated, pissed off, and they may be good at it uh, too. But then there are others who say, where do you need me most? And I tell folks, I have done everything from swept the floors to lead the meeting. And um, But the thing that is most powerful for me is to have met someone with low self-esteem, didn't think they could have any impact on their life, let alone others. And six months, a year, maybe two years later, they're some of the most dynamic people you ever want to meet. And if there's anything for me, a quote payoff, it's that. I mean, or to have a student like uh, Dan uh, come to my class and hear me speak and say, because of that, he chose a struggle of um, uh, for human rights as a life's vocation. So those are the love mm. aspect for me. Mm. Wow, that, that's so interesting. I just want to comment on that. That What's beautiful to me uh, in part about that, Michael, is that the transformation of human beings in the process of fighting for justice together is something that's already an amazing thing. Like even as the, the, the push for justice continues, the fight, the struggle continues, but people often forget about the beauty of the transformation of the human beings themselves in that process. Right. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. That's awesome. And, and yeah. that's, that's a big part of, of what I wanted to get across in the book. And that I think is 
so often missed when you know when we as we were talking about earlier you know we we get a sort of focus on king or on malcolm or, or these sort of larger than life people who we mostly know for their speeches and it's not to deny the impact of of those speeches right but but we get people who are sort of frozen in time and frozen in in a in a sort of spectacle, you know, like be, being, you know, at, at the left turn, being in front of the crowd, right? And we miss, like, how did people get to get there, right? <laughs> like, what, what, what brought anyone to that crowd, right? And what, what enabled them, that person to give that speech? And what happened afterwards, right? And, and I think it gives us that, that kind of, you know, um, you know, sort of siloed or, or, or the, that kind of uh, narrow response gives us a real failed idea of how change happens right if we get this like oh we just we just need better speeches right we just we just need right, more speeches um, and i think it you know it misses that sense uh right right that it that it takes place over a long time period that we that maybe we we begin to ask different questions uh, at different moments right mm -hmm. that it takes place over multiple organizations right and that, i think that evolution that learning process as much for the organizer as for anybody else uh, is is the most important part of, of how we understand the process of change. Uh, Zohara, you, <clears throat> um, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly in the book, you uh, spent some time in uh, uh, overseas and in, in Africa and and, and uh, other other parts of the world. Uh, am I remembering that correctly? Uh, well, I've been to Africa, but in terms of doing some work i was in the middle east yeah and, and east asia also it, yes but Great. i lived for two years uh based in jordan uh but i was you know i spent time in syria and uh egypt and um house and in israel uh working with women who were uh attempting to get their human rights uh muslim women so this was uh you know i went there uh on a fulbright uh scholarship and then i had a state department scholarship also to do research uh for the dissertation that i had you know wanted to write and did write uh on the impact of islamic law on muslim women and uh interestingly the topic had come to me uh, because I went to uh, Beijing in 1995 for the fourth United Nations Conference on Women. And I worked for AFSC and I was sent as a part of a Quaker delegation, the only Muslim in the group. And so we sort of divided up what issues we were going to follow and of course, everybody said, well, we know you're going to be with Muslim women. I said, you got that right. And so, of course, going from workshop to workshop, if the women were from Mali, from um, Afghanistan, wherever, all they talked about was how Islamic law, the way it was interpreted, was making uh, their lives so miserable and that this is what needed to change. So. I got really caught up in that in Beijing and then decided that's what I was gonna focus on in my academic uh, work. And so 
when I was living in Jordan, I was working with women's groups uh, and traveling around into the villages and all of that, uh, doing <clears throat> workshops on women's rights and the like. So that was uh, an incredible experience for me. And also seeing those women being energized and activated in a very difficult situation for many of them. And I wonder, just to follow up a little bit, uh, you know, if you've taken any lessons as to, you know, the, the tactics or strategy or, or, you know, how best to achieve justice for folks in, you know, like, like the, 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 the global South, the third world, whatever you want to call it, um, impoverished nations, um, a lot of a lot of those places you 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 mentioned you stayed in have have suffered terribly uh you know just even over the last decade syria especially um and uh you know what what is to be done about that or or if you know if if anything is even in the realm of the possible <laughs> well you know that takes us into international uh issues you know and certainly um the I must say that getting a foundation in SNCC, in the civil rights movement here in the United States, and while we were working, you know, focused on uh, racism and and uh, the anti-democratic nature of our society, not just the South, of course, you know, that was the focus at that point. Uh, we also in SNCC were very interested in what was happening in the rest of the world. And as has been mentioned, uh, SNCC, in fact, it was the first civil rights group to issue a statement against the war in Vietnam. We also issued a statement against the occupation of Palestine. And you can believe we caught hell for both of those statements. And then right after the 1964 summer project, we sent a delegation uh, to Africa, traveled extensively meeting uh, the uh, anti-colonialist leaders and uh, they brought all that information back to us. So, you know, uh, when I got to, uh, well, first of all, I had gone as a member of an AFSC delegation to Vietnam, Uh, Cambodia, Laos, being the first Americans to set foot in Cambodia after the Vietnamese routed Pol Pot and talking to those survivors and learning and seeing the destruction that the United States uh, had done in those countries. I mean, I was ashamed. I didn't even want anybody to know that I was an American. And of course, Nobody thought I was an American because at that point it was like all Americans are white, right? <laughs> I mean, I ran into that in the Middle East when somebody would say, Well, you know, she's from America. Like, oh, no, 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 she's African. And so sometimes I let it ride because I didn't want to. Fair enough. Yeah. So, yeah. But it, it's. It, you know, everything is transferable, even when you don't have good language skills. I mean, you know, I 
I took a, a, a young woman around with me who was a grad student to, to translate for me in many cases because, you know, my Arabic never got good. Um, but people, she would tell them, you know, that I was in the civil rights movement, the human rights movement, the women's movement. Then they wanted to hear what I had to say. So she would translate. I mean, and just uh, to become friends uh, and close associates with these women in these uh, countries. I mean, it's the same. You know, people are the same right, and love right. the same. A Amen. Yeah. No, this is, I'm going to follow up with Michael here because this is a beautiful entryway into. I love your stories in this book. I mean, frankly, I got exhausted just like reading about your lives. I can imagine actually going through everything you all went through. I was just tired just reading about it, first of all. So, you know, good on you and God bless. But like, well, we spread odds out. But, but what, what I love in, in keeping with the theme of love here is that love and the activism and dedication of your lives was both, as you pointed out, Michael, always local and like love looks like relating to the people who I'm with now. What do they need? What can I do? How can I be a part of improving their lives? But as O'Hara just pointed out, it's also global realizing that everyone, right, is equally human and deserves freedom and love and justice. And so like there's, you know, you guys are properly dialectical. So there's a lot of thinking about the local, the global, and, 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 you know, these days we talk about intersectionality and the ways that the fight for justice brings together all kinds of, of different people and disparate local fights and different kinds of groupings. So I wonder, Michael, if you could talk a bit about your realization over the years of, of how these complexities went together, right? People that are different, but the same and, and local global and, and, and how these different fronts are all part of the same fight. Right. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, um, that's important. You know, one of the, you know, that, like, as I mentioned earlier, I've been living in, in Europe for, um, uh, the last uh, 20 years. Um, and, um, uh, living and working. Um, but, uh, and one of the things about living in Europe, unlike this country, at least in Eastern Europe, is um, that there's um, ethnic cultural fertilization of expat communities, of uh, um, petty bourgeois elites, so that um, unlike my reality in the States, where at least in the Northeast, generally speaking, I'm in a pretty much homogeneous African-American environment, not not totally homogeneous. And I'm not critical of that in and of itself. What I am critical of, though, is that quite often we in the U.S. and parts of the U.S., we isolate ourselves and for various reasons, some almost um, legally imposed. But uh, uh, so that uh, we don't get a chance to uh, engage others and uh, culturally or just in a social level, let alone a political level and often the political is abstract and that um and and so that to that degree that like i've had the 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 experience of having intimate relationships with people fighting for human rights throughout the world and as Zahar said you know or let me just put it this way because i tell people you know we talk about organizing and nuance you you know understanding people's culture understanding um habits and all. But if you step in, that's important. I don't mean but. 
That's important. However, I've never been anywhere in the world to talk to someone who's depressed where God, they don't want uh, a quality education for their children, a, a decent home, not luxurious home, a job that they can pay uh, their rent and um, to take care of their family, male or female. Now, but within that, you got people that God, don't eat meat, don't eat pork, don't eat beef, take off their shoes, don't drink cigarettes, don't drink liquor, don't smoke. You got all these other things. But at its essence, it's about education, employment, and housing, wherever you go. So that that's always my starting point. The other starting point I always say is that is that um, if if I think it needs to be changed, then I should be able to convince somebody else that it needs to be changed. And if I can't do it the first time, that just means that I did something wrong. And I think that I impose upon myself that, Michael, we got to try something else. If it's as bad as you think it is, then you're not that smart that you're the only one that can see this. You're just one of the few right now who thinks they can do something about it. And that's what separates us out. So that and so that the organizer doesn't have to do it, has to show that it can be done. In fact, the teacher is 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 often the student when you go in to organize folks. So that in the international arena, reading and talking to people from everywhere from uh uh Eastern Europe where I, where I've been living to uh Southern Africa to Vietnam, I mean just listening to the experiences of people. I mean, I feel honored to be in that audience. I feel honored to be considered a comrade because I just respect these very these got different cultures with got different strategies and got different approaches that I may not have. They have just enhanced my reality uh, mm. for mm. appreciating social change. I was going to ask Sohara, because that reminds me of the role of art in transformative change, right? I mean, Michael's written a play. Your 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 daughter is a documentarian. What well, what are your thoughts on the importance of of well, reading groups also and literature, but also uh, you know film and and how, why is art and narrative so important? Well, this book that Dan wrote is narrative, right? Like, why are stories and storytelling so important uh, in fighting justice? Do you think? Fighting for justice. Well, you know, one of the things that was so important during the civil rights uh, uh, era was the singing, uh, the what we call the freedom songs, uh, which were often, you know, uh, uh, African-American spirituals with certain words changed to emphasize freedom and justice and equality. And I can tell you that I don't believe we would have had the kind of vibrant movement we had if we had not uh, sort of rode on the music. Uh, because the more afraid we were, and I know this myself, the louder we sang. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when they moving in on you with the billy clubs and and, uh, you know, you know, you're getting ready to be dragged off and thrown in a paddy wagon. We sang the loudest 
So it was sort of like that uh, gave us the uh, the spirit of resistance. So this was very important. And one of the big things we did during Mississippi Freedom Summer was we had uh, musicians coming through. So we had concerts in the churches or outdoors. We had plays. Uh, and, you know, most of these people had never seen uh, uh, actors, real actors and actresses perform plays. And when they told me they were going to do Waiting for Godot, I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> Waiting for Godot. And the people loved it. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> the kids, the next two or three days, everybody was talking about what it meant. You know, so uh, art was a huge <laughs> part of, of our struggle. Huge. Uh, you know, in that same vein, if I could just pick up, you know, that that um most of like if um if you look at Zahar's grandmother, my mother, and other people of uh, the family, a creative uh writer could write plays about their lives. But if you talk to them about their lives, they'll say, Oh, I didn't do nothing. Oh, that was nothing. That like because they just did what they thought was the right thing to do. They weren't thinking about anything but the next thing to do. And so that, like, I um, um, uh, started telling young people in Europe where I was working with Roma, who had been through the Holocaust and all, that's it. That, like, I would tell them, say, look, go to the oldest member of your family, whoever that may be, uh, and just turn on the tape recorder or video if you have it, and just have them talk about their lives, particularly those who lived through World War II and the Holocaust. And similarly, I wish we had done that in the South during the Civil Rights Movement. If we had collected the stories of people like, I mean, they, you guys may know it now, but but uh, um, the first, uh, it seemed like the first day I was there in Helena, Arkansas, some older person started telling me about something they called the Elaine Massacre, which was one of those 1919 programs in, in, in this case, the state of Arkansas, where sharecroppers had I mean, met to try to get a couple pennies more a day. I mean, literally a couple pennies more a day and were killed, slaughtered. And mm -hmm. there are people who remember that, uh, who were children, who whose parents got killed. And I just wish that we had cataloged those stories as um, the way that Holocaust stories are, are cataloged and the way that that people remember the trauma, not in terms of wallowing in the trauma, but showing, as Maya Angelou said, and still we survive and still mm. we stand tall mm. in spite mm. of all that has happened. I mean, the horrendous history. Um, mm. Here we are fighting back. So I just think that that, in terms of looking at culture and art and form, that uh, there is so much untapped art in the African-American community. And I go by what was tapped when I was in jail. I mean, you mentioned that I wrote a play. I mean, I did and I didn't. I mean, I did, yes, but there were other so, so many other people involved that legally I couldn't even say that I wrote it. I coordinated the people and who, and we all put it together. But the point is that 
there are circumstances where I might have realized I could do that. These guys, this was the first time they even thought about writing their damn names, let alone a play. You know, I mean, and uh, and they wrote it and produced it and did all these. Mm, and it's mm, just one little piece of the, mm. the piece of earth. I mean, there's so much that that has yet to be developed and tapped in terms of uh, the cultural potential of oppressed people. Mm. It's a. Uh... It's kind of wild to to hear you say that, Michael. I, and I think it's true. But you know, you think it was like who who are the most culturally productive people in history? Yeah. Uh, African Americans are probably towards <laughs> the top of the list. Uh, you know, a dozen different types of of music and literature and 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 on and on. Um, but D- Dan, I wanted to bring you back in. Uh, as as you know, we're getting running out of time here. Um. You know, you you in this book, uh, you know, you we're we're mostly talking about for most of the length of it the, you know, the the history of the civil rights movement and ensuing, you know, stuff uh, that sort of came out of that later, and you know, there's an obvious parallel to be drawn with the Black Lives Matter movement the uh, against you know police brutality and racism writ large that's that started you know kind of kind of got steam around 2014 i guess uh with ferguson um and you know sort of i think continues to this day kind of a, a central hinge point or one of them at least in modern politics and and so what your uh study of this history has illuminated about this movement uh that that is still on, uh, that is ongoing today yeah i mean you know there's there's obviously various you know technological differences in, in terms of how people uh can can reach one another and so on but you know one, one point uh, mike and i were just doing a series of events uh in the mid-atlantic and one point that he made often is you know you would think that um, you know, a struggle, a movement against police violence would start in, in New York or Philly or Chicago or, you know, these sort of major places. But instead, as it was Sanford, Florida and, and, and Ferguson, Missouri. And I think that sense of, you know, shifting the, the ways that that movements shift our sense of geography uh, is is so profound. Right. I mean, you know, Nina Simone's song, Mississippi Goddamn, you know, really helped helps a whole generation of not just Americans, you know, people all over the world understand Mississippi as a place, you know, geographically, politically, and so on. Um, and I think Black Lives Matter has done the same thing, right? And, and you know, we've seen the, these different forms of, of solidarity, the like Ferguson to Palestine dem- uh, delegations, rather. Um, mm. And, you know, so, so I think, I, as we've been saying, like, I think the process of social change looks fairly similar right people need need this need to go through some of the same sorts of um you know forms of empowerment and growth uh, and, and struggle and yet the context differs right the 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 apparatus of policing and the larger sort of carceral system is bigger now than it's ever been before <laughs> um, and and that's that's part of the the dynamic uh, that that movement for Black Lives and, and other organizations contend with. I'll just say that you know the 2020 uprisings was were so profound 
in a series of ways, but one, but one of the ways um, is that it, here was a Black-led movement that, that was intergenerational and multiracial at its core. And I mm -hmm. think the severity of the response from the attacks on critical race theory and, and the attempts to, to totally you know, rewrite or, or revoke um, a variety of educational you know, institutions, uh, you know, forms of scholarship and so on. You know, I think we need to understand that as, as a direct assault on mm -hmm. how powerful those movements were. I think there's a lot of sort of, you know, inside baseball dimensions about organizations and, and infrastructure that I think is both beyond our time uh, right, <laughs> that we have right now and, and, and probably, you know, beyond what I, what I, or what any of us individually could comment on. Um, mm -hmm. But I think I, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that, you know, 2020 was probably the most radical multiracial movement that we've had in this country, perhaps since Reconstruction, <laughs> really. Uh, I mean, when, when you think about the sort of scale of it all. Um, and, and much like the assaults that overthrew Reconstruction, um, I think we're, we're sort of living through that period again right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You can tell the, I think the strength of, of, of 2020, which has sort of been memory hold a little bit, uh, is, is how severe the backlash has been. Um, that, 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 that so many, uh, reactionary psychopaths are talking about critical race theory, uh, and like doing Hitler youth bonfires practically burning the a hungry caterpillar or whatever you know as being part of the woke agenda that doesn't happen unless people are panicked about the possibility of you know basically a multiracial alliance against you know the capitalist exploitation more or less and the um you know the the the, the prison system um i have what, there's one question uh, I, I wanted to ask you, Michael, because part of the book is about, you know, you spent some time in, in jail uh, in, in Philadelphia. Um, but it's, it's, it, was, it was kind of an interesting time to go to jail, I think, because you got busted for a bullshit charge, it seems like to me. To me. I'm, not a, I'm not a lawyer, but you were you, you like were the, yeah, yeah, you were like still <laughs> you were still in jail before the huge surge in the incarceration rate and i think that the, the 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 like the way in which prisons became insanely brutal uh so can you speak to the way that like the prison system has evolved and the way like the 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 things that that were even just the tiniest little trifles of of things that you used to be able to do in prison that have been totally removed uh, uh, over the, you know, education or just books to read and stuff like that. And, and what you sort of uh, learned from that experience. If I can just exert a little bit of, of historian prerogative here, just sure. the context <laughs> for, for listeners who might not know or might not have read the book yet, um, that, uh, that, that Michael went to prison for refusing induction into the military. Um, which happened first in 1966, and there's a really riveting and exciting sort of part of the book describing his initial jail stint. 
um, but then went to prison uh, outside of Philly in the, from 1969 to 1971. So this is a time period that 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 some folks uh, in through abolitionist circles and folks who study this call the prison rebellion years, right? So 1968 to 1972 was a, you know, dozens of rebellions in, in prisons and jails around the country, most famously at Attica, but but Attica was only Attica because of the severity of state response, right? The sort of scale of the rebellion is one that was, you know, uh, that, that could be found elsewhere uh, in that time period. Um, certainly the ambitions of the Attica Rebellion were found in San Quentin and Folsom and uh, many other places in between. Um, and then what we now call mass incarceration, and you know, sort of begins in terms of the numbers of people going to prison uh, in 1973, so, so shortly after Michael gets out. But I just wanted to sort of give, give a little bit of that, that context <clears throat> before Michael spoke. Yeah, and, and that context, I think, is important. I, I was going to start there, although, yeah, I, I do like to remind folks that I didn't rob a bank, although not <laughs> that I'm opposed to robbing banks, but I, I didn't do it. Uh, but uh, uh, um, but uh, uh, my experiences in jail, just um, um, coincidentally, in some regards, but in some ways, you know, I've never really given it a lot of thought, but the similar to African-American troops in Vietnam, that the political ideas that were generated by the movement writ large, if you will, um, flow everywhere. I mean, there was no no wall in the in the army or a wall in jail. People, people's heroes in jail were people like Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael, people who had never been out of jail for 20 years. Had um, Huey Newton, Elvis Cleaver, you go, you, uh, you name it, uh, could at least tell you our uh, Fannie Lou Hamer's name. So that the the jail experience was already dynamic when I got there. At least I, mean, I spent short times in the South, but 1969 was a two and a half year stint. And that um, so that the conversations were political conversations and. And it was ideal for someone like myself and some others who were conscientious objectors in the sense that um, um, it wasn't hard to say, well, we have rights here. This notion that once you get to jail, you lose all your rights, that's not true. We're still human beings. They still have to uh, um, uh, be fair with us within the confines of the penitentiary. So that it, it, it helped to create a a political context. The movement permeated every aspect of life, uh, and uh, and jail was but one. That when I look at the the uh, that like I was in jail during Attica. I was in jail. Uh, in fact, I was at Lewisburg Penitentiary during Attica. I read uh, George Jackson's book, which just blew my mind in terms of Soledad Brother. When I was in jail and thinking about um, the ideas that he had come up with as a um, prisoner in solitary confinement, no less. So that to to that degree, um, um, it was a very dynamic, a dynamism of the movement spread into the jails and back outside to the movement. Um, and uh, some of the most dynamic people I, I've ever met uh, never got out of jail after I left, who were just intellectually brilliant. 
who was strategically brilliant. And, you know, the, the, the more restriction your environment or, or the more restricted your environment is, the more creative you got to be about organizing. And, uh, and the things that, that we, they came up with in jail uh, just stay in my mind to this very day. And I would just add mm. that, that the carceral system that we now have was built directly to counter that, right? <laughs> right? right, right. Uh, and, yeah. and I think that, that sort of truism that Michael ended on, the more restrictive your environment, the more creative you have to be, that's still true. I mean, it's not, it's not to say that, that mass incarceration has eviscerated organizing because we've seen, you know, the last 10 years or so, uh, we've seen dozens of labor and hunger strikes throughout prison systems. So pe people are, are still doing that, right? But, but I, I think that sense of dynamism and how much the movement had permeated inside jails and prisons and how much that fed back into the movement on the streets you know, that's, that's a big part of what mass incarceration was trying to, to crush. Yeah. And brutally, I mean, was it today that I heard they're closing down that horrible prison uh, where all these people were committing suicide and, and because of the conditions? Oh, my. It's, it's just <sighs> unbelievable. Do you know the one I mean that's um, I, 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 I can't think of it. I, I yeah, I just heard it on NPR that uh, they are closing it because of so many suicides. And then they went went on to say that one of the reasons that there was uh, so much of this is because of the solitary confinement uh, uh, regime that they had there, which was so horrible that, you know, people kill themselves rather than to undergo that. <laughs> So the prison system in this country is shameful. You know, I, I'm, I mean, the way that we try to go around talking about how uh, the hell holes in other parts of the world where people are hell, and we're doing the very same thing here. People are right. hell in hell holes. Uh, you know, it is outrageous. And I think, and so maybe this is my last question for everyone. Um, because we, we should have righteous anger at the injustice that is so uh, dominant today, locally, nationally, globally. And, and it's exhausting to see how much that you've both fought for still recurring in so many manifestations in different ways. And, and so, like, I guess what I'm, I'm my question is. <sighs> You know, this book is in many ways about love and hope and political possibility and, and, and things that would maybe move people to act and desire and learn and, and, and come together to, to fight and to grow. And yet so much of the story also is about violence and brutality and injustice, state sanctioned imperialism, all these terrible things that are still with us, as you know. What message or, or, lesson do you have about the way to get people to still think that hope and love and possibility are realities to embrace given the persistence of the injustice and violence? Like what, what, I mean, you've been through so much that others haven't, right? And yet you still presumably 
fight and have hope and don't give up, right? What, what, what keeps you going and what, what can you tell people who very understandably want to just say, fuck it, I'm done with, with this, this world, right? Well, you know, for me, I mean, not to, to be flipped, but really, I mean, we, we have no choice. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I mean, we can choose to allow them to keep doing what they do and we kind of weave in and out and, and it's possible for, uh, some of us who could do that and live a quote good life in the yeah. sense. Um, it's a, pri- it's a, it's a privilege. privilege. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but for me, um, stopping them, it's even slowing them down, even, you know, as I, uh, used to tell people in Europe about, you know, certain strategies. And I said, look, well, at least one day they're not going to have a good day this week. <laughs> I mean, you know, that might be our only victory. <laughs> But, you know, but but things like, you know, that there's so many things that, uh, you know, that 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 keep me up. I mean, even, you know, that as I uh, in terms of my work in Central Europe, I always uh, pointed out that how even when you lose the short term, you still are winning because they saw you fighting. They never saw you fight before. They are gearing up for that. They're thinking about that, that you can. They're going to make moderate concessions. You could almost predict what's going to happen in the short run. So that, that uh, and damn it if you don't win sometimes. So <laughs> I, so, uh, so all of those things for me, that's what keeps me going. And to see people just emerging every day, every day, uh, in all parts of the world, trying to stand up to oppression. So that's that's what the candle that I hold in my life. And, and, you know, one of the things, of course, having taught here at the University of Florida in the state that's running hard to become the Mm. worst state in the union, the most fascist Mm. state (laughs) in the United States. Uh, But, you know, working with young people to be able to tell them that we did win some things. Now they're trying to roll it all back, but you got to know where we started because of course, for many of them, when I would tell the stories, you know, of my growing up and what happened in Mississippi and stuff, they could not believe it, you know, because they had lived in the life that the movement created. So, you know, I would say to them, do you know why this black woman can be teaching at the University of Florida in this majority white school? I said, nobody just decided that black people could come to this school. I mean, why do you think you're in here? And I could say that to the Indians, the Asians. Why do you think you can now live in the South without being killed? Uh, This the movement did this. People did this. Why do people not have to work from sunup to sundown, seven days a week, children eight, nine years old? I said, it was a labor movement that did this. Nobody gave you anything in this country. Don't believe the myths. Don't believe the lies. We fought for everything we got. They're trying to take it back, and we're not going to let them. 
Uh, that's that that is exceptionally well said and i think a great note to end on uh the the book is called state on freedom the long history of black power through one family's journey by dan berger featuring uh zohara and michael simmons uh thanks thanks everyone for for coming on the program yes 